Mountain. Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. Welcome. If you're kind of new around here, a special welcome to you. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and you're coming in at a great time because a lot of us for a long time have always said, boy, I wish I could just have a way of kind of understanding the whole Bible, you know, and uh, a lot of us have tried to read through it and not been successful in that, and that's what we're doing together. We're helping each other do that. We're using this book called The Story, and we're about a fourth of the way through the story, God's story. And uh, how many of you read? Brag a little bit. Show your hand if you read chapter 8 this week. Come on, show it. There you go. Awesome. How many finished in the car on the way out in the, in, in the parking lot? Anyway? <laughs> so we got it done. That's great. It's a very fascinating um, part of the Bible and the Old Testament. And so much going on. One of the ways we can kind of recapture and, and do a summary of that to bring everyone up to speed is on video. So let's do that right now. Watch the screen and we'll get everybody all caught up. After Joshua died, the Israelites began to worship other gods. Because of this, God caused them to lose their battles and become slaves of other nations. Each time this happened, God would raise up one man or woman called a judge to help the Israelites escape. But after each escape, Israel would go back to their old ways, not living how God had told them to live. Then they would lose another battle and fall back into slavery. This cycle happened over and over again. At one point, the Israelites were enslaved in a country called Midian. They cried out to God for rescue, and God sent an angel to a man named Gideon to help them. God told Gideon the only way to beat the Midianites was to send only a small number of soldiers, just 300. So, in the middle of the night, the 300 soldiers came to the edge of the Midianite camp, blew their trumpets all at once, and smashed jars with torches in them. The incredible sight and sound this made confused and terrified the Midianites so much they began to kill one another. Gideon and the Israelites chased the remaining Midianites and killed them all. After this battle, Israel enjoyed 40 years of peace. But when Gideon died, the Israelites went back to their old ways, worshiping other gods. So they were captured by the Philistines. God sent another judge named Samson. Samson had long hair and was incredibly strong. At one point, he actually killed a wild lion with his bare hands, tearing it to pieces. The Philistine leaders were afraid of Samson because of his incredible strength. So they came up with a plan. They knew Samson had fallen in love with a woman named Delilah. So they paid her to find out the secret behind his superhuman strength. After much convincing, Samson revealed that his long hair made him strong. Soon after, while Samson was sleeping, Delilah led the leaders into his room and they cut off his hair. With his strength gone, the Philistines gouged his eyes out and threw him in prison. While there, his hair grew back and his strength began to return. One day, while the Philistines were partying, they took Samson out of prison, forcing him to perform in front of them in their palace. While standing between two pillars, Samson prayed that God would give him strength. Then, he placed his hands on the pillars and shook them until the roof of the palace completely caved in, killing all the Philistines as well as himself. 
After Samson's death, the Israelites' pattern of disobedience continued, and God would need to look outside of Israel for someone who would follow God's ways. Okay, that guy's amazing, isn't he? Wow. So, a lot of material to, to cover, and some strange, um, some strange stories in this section of the Bible, for sure. Uh, speaking of strange, I saw a very strange headline this week, and um, I want to share it with you. Well, the headline was this, Wisconsin man uses stun gun on wife. <laughs> so I thought, I want to read that article, see what that's about. So here it is. Um, an Illinois man is charged with a felony after using a stun gun on his wife as part of a bet on the Packers-Bears game. <laughs> Which now it's understandable. So picture this. It keeps getting better. While they were driving through Mayville, Wisconsin, in their semi-truck, the couple stopped at a bar to watch Monday night football game between the Packers and the Bears. Seems the wife is a Packers fan and the husband was a Bears fan. And get this, she makes a bet with him that if Green Bay loses, he can use the stun gun on her for three seconds. So, well, the Packers lost, and he does it, zaps her three times, shocking. And then about 1 a.m., the police get a call, and they come and arrest the guy. Last sentence of the article, court records say both had been drinking. You think? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, so have you ever made a promise you, you lived to regret? Probably you have. Almost probably everybody has in one time or another. As I got to thinking about that, it dawned on me that most of the promises I regret the most are the ones that I don't keep. The ones that I don't keep. And it's probably true for all of us. We make promises and vows that we're unable to fulfill. And they're the ones that lend most regret to us. Marriage vows. Or, I won't do that again. I won't drink again. I won't get angry like that. I won't let that person push my buttons like that again. I, I, I won't let my, that happen to my body again. I, I'll try harder. I'll love more. I'll quit. All those kind of things. And then we, we make promises to God too, don't we? We've all made promises to God. And some, sometimes we've maybe even been in that desperate time. Probably, probably almost every one of us has been in that place where it's like, God, I swear if you get me out of this one this time, I will, and then fill in the blank, right? And other promises we make to God as well. So today's scripture, this chapter 8 of the story, and it's really the book of Judges in the Bible, is especially important for anyone who's ever made a promise to God that you weren't able to keep. So remember where we left off last week. Uh, Joshua was the people, uh, the leader of the people of Israel, right? And so Moses got him up to the edge of the promised land. He dies. Joshua takes over. And then they go and they, they get through the Jordan River and the, and the walls of Jericho fall down. They have that big conquest there, right? And, and then there's a big speech at the end of Joshua. If you turn your Bible back one page to Joshua 24, he makes a big speech and he says, okay, so now, now that we're going to go into this land, let's remember who we are. Fear the Lord, he says in verse 14 of Joshua 24, and serve him with all faithfulness. Everybody say faithfulness. Let that word anchor in its heart, in your heart today. Throw away those gods that your forefathers worshipped over there uh, in, in Egypt. Remember in Egypt, the ten plagues, and each one of those refuted a different god, and God said, I'll be your god. And they said yes. But Joshua goes on to say, but, you know, if serving the Lord seems like something you don't want to do, undesirable to you, you've got to choose. 
So choose who you're going to serve, whether those gods over there beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites where you land, where, where you live now, or the one true God. And then he stands up and he boldly declares, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And when you hear those words, it's a part of you, and just like me, that probably wants to go, amen, me too. And that's what they did. That's what they said. They said, of course we're going to do that. The next few verses, 16 to 18 there, talk about how we're not going to forsake our God and serve those other gods. We're going to serve the Lord because He is our Lord. We're going to be faithful. So then we turn the page and we come to the book of Judges, entering into a new period of history here. And guess what? Um, they, they, they follow through on their promise for a while. Judges chapter 2, verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and all who had seen the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. But then, verse 8, it says this, Joshua, son of Nun, apparently he had no parents. Anyway, all right, so Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. And every time I hear the word, you know, died with a great leader, I'm like, uh-oh, something bad's about to happen because that's what happens every time someone dies, right? So the question is, okay, what's going to happen now that Joshua's dead? Are they going to be faithful? Are they going to follow? Look what happens. Unfortunately, the promise of faithfulness that they made is one that they do not keep. Instead of faithfulness, here's what you see happening. Verse 10, after that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors and another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done in Israel. They didn't pass this along to their children very well. So then look at verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who'd brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And this, they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baals and the Ashtoreths. So what happens in the next several verses of Scripture here in your story is that God kind of says, okay, you want it that way? And he kind of turns them over and he, and he, he withholds some of his blessing and protection and guidance for them. And so these neighboring villages that are filled with raiders and, and others, they come in and they plunder them and then suddenly they put the, the children of Israel into slavery and it's a very difficult time as they're defeated now and they, they live in a great period of distress. And so what the Lord does is he comes into the picture and he raises up a kind of deliverer, a leader among the people called a judge who will serve as a kind of national and spiritual leader to, to help them them get out of the oppression that they're in and get back on track with God but again and again the people as soon as that happens they prostitute themselves to these other gods and go after their neighboring uh, the neighboring culture and um, they return to ways the Bible says that are even more corrupt than before and it goes around and around and around like that in a kind of cycle and over here I've kind of drawn what that cycle starts looking like and this is a cycle that repeats itself throughout the whole book of Judges which covers a span of 330 years Think about that. It starts with, with a kind of familiarity to it that we all can identify with. It starts with a kind of disobedience to God, a kind of saying, God, I know that we said we're going to do this, but here's what I want to do, or a, or a sense that I'm going to go my own way and I know it's better for my life. And they begin to do this, and this disobedience inevitably has consequences. And God sort of pulls back and says, okay, I'm going to let you just kind of see how that goes for you. And inevitably, whenever we sin, sin is separation from God and other people. That's what it does. And when you are separated from God and other people, you experience sorrow and suffering and a struggle in your life. You always do. And that's what they began to experience. Physical, spiritual, emotional, every other part of their life that begins to... And, it, and when you start getting enough pain, when your life starts to stink enough, 
eventually they begin to cry out to God. They turn to God in their desperation and their difficulty and they say, we need your help. And the amazing part of the story is not that that these people disobey God, and nor is it that there are consequences that they experience from that, nor that they cry out to God. The amazing part of the story is that God in His mercy and His compassion again and again and again sends help, a deliverer, a rescuer, in the form of usually a judge He'd raise up, pour out His Spirit on them, and help them find their way back to Him. And then they would live in peace, and they would live, have some good periods until that leader died or until they sort of just got lazy or got back off track and eventually what would happen is they'd go right back into the pattern of sin and then they would complete the cycle. And round and round this went. 330 years through a period of 13 different rescuers that God sent called judges. Only 110 of those 330 years were spent living with the Lord in peace and the rest of it in turmoil and all messed up. It's, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Until we start thinking about our own lives and we realize, man, this cycle, that's our story. It's your story. Proverbs 26 is that verse in the Bible that says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so is a foolish person who repeats his own silliness or foolishness. And you, th- you know what you know, you ever seen that? A dog pukes and then you're like, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And the dog goes over and it's like, oh, it's like, oh, you can hardly stand to watch. That's how you feel when you read the book of Judges and it's how you might feel when you start to think about your life and maybe how God feels when he looks at us and he sees the kind of straying from him and the pain we go through and then finally saying, okay, God, and then God coming through and being gracious and we go right back and, and this cycle, whether it's addiction or just telling white lies or letting your anger get out of control or just making these promises of fidelity and faithfulness to God that we walk away from when we say we're going to put them first and then we don't. This is the cycle that you and I live with. And so God sends a rescuer, a judge. When you hear the word judge, you probably in our culture we think of, like you old-timers, think of Flip Wilson, right? Here comes a judge. Or Judge Judy or someone with a gavel and a black robe. But a judge just simply meant a sort of ruler or leader, a national and spiritual, sometimes military leader who would come and God would kind of pour out his spirit on them in a special empowerment kind of way and they would be a tool used by God to bring the people back to a place of um, obedience to God. And the, and the story talks about three of the 13. You'll want to go back and judges and read some of the interesting details about some of the others. And we'll just touch on a couple of them. The first judge we meet in the story is Deborah. Everybody say Deborah. Deborah. She is, uh, the Bible is very interested in showing us strong, capable, competent women. And she's one of those that the Bible showcases for us. She's a leader. She's a prophet. And uh, frankly, she's not someone you really want to mess with. And uh, so page 105 in the story, Judges chapter 4, we're at the period of of the cycle here where the people have been enslaved by the king of Canaan for a long time and they're experiencing a lot of difficulty as a result. There's a king named, there's a a ruler, a a general named Sisera who works for the king of Canaan and he's been beating the stuffings out of the people for 20 years and they cry out to God and God says, okay, you've had your consequences long enough, I'm going to rescue you. And he raises up this judge, this leader named Deborah. And Deborah... Uh, recruits a general named Barak, no relation that I'm aware of, and 
He says, she says, God has told me you're going to go and fight against this general Sisera from Canaanites and you're, and you're going to be victorious. And he's, he's afraid and he's like, well, you hold my hand. I'm afraid to go if you don't go with me. And um, she says, yes, of course I'll go with you. But because you're a coward, the glory of this battle is going to go to a woman. And that's kind of a prophetic word. And everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be Deborah that's this, this hero. Fast forward, there's a huge battle and there's a victory. Barak and his army defeats Sisera and his army decimates everybody. At Sisera, the general gets away and he runs. He goes to a neighboring village where he thinks there's um, going to be a haven for him. He knocks on the, the door. Can a tent have a door? I don't know. Anyway, knocks on the door of this lady named J.L. who says, come right in. Don't be afraid. Here, lie down. You want a blankie? He says, can I have some water? He says, here's some milk instead, honey. And uh, so he lies down he's all comfortable and then he says if anybody comes looking for me tell them I'm not here and he hides under his blanket and goes to sleep and uh, she says no problem I got you covered <laughs> verse 21 but J.L. Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep cue the music <laughs> she drives the peg through his temple into the ground. And then the Bible so eloquently adds, and he died. Yeah, in case you're wondering what happens when you get a, you know, a pole through your brain, you're dead. So it's hardcore kind of rated M for mature stuff all the way through the book of Judges like this. Then, I love this, uh, Barak comes looking. He's going to try to find this guy and put him, put him away and you know, be the victor of the battle. And he said, have you seen Sisera? She says kind of like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did see him a little earlier. Yeah, uh-huh. Where is he? Oh, he might still be in the tent, you know, since his brain's nailed to the floor. He's probably still in there. How'd you like to be, how'd you like to be J.L.'s husband? You know, like get in an argument with that woman. <laughs> She's just like, honey, why don't you just go have a little nap? Want some milk? No, I'm good, I'm good. Never mind, honey, you're right. You know, whatever else we can learn from this, I think one of the messages that, that sticks out to me is that anyone who thinks women primarily are around to sort of fetch you something to drink and cover up with a blanket better think twice. Because... God shows how his upper story is going to happen, and he can use whoever he wants, however he wants to. And that's true in your life. Whatever your lower story is and whoever you are, God can use it and wants to use it in the upper story, even if you're not perfect, because none of these judges are perfect. In our day, women occupy all of the highest offices of power. They're CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, they're presidents of nations, they're presidents of universities, and so on. So it, it might not strike you as very odd uh, to see Deborah and J.L. elevated uh, to hero status. But back then, it's clear that in these Old Testament scriptures, God is making a statement in the midst of that patriarchal, male-dominated society. Part of that statement is that God can use anybody however He wants, whenever He wants. And I think part of the statement is comes through the prophet Joel, we'll hear from later, when Joel says one day God is going to pour out His Spirit, not just on judges, but God's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And he mentions old and young, male and female, and all of this stuff. And that's coming. And then in the New Testament, after Christ, in the book of Acts, the Bible promises it's happened. God has poured out His Spirit, and His Spirit has come, and it's available to all of us, old and young, male and female. You don't have to be a priest. It doesn't matter your title, your position, your prominence, your family, your gender, your ethnicity, your age. God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh, and it's a picture of what God's kingdom looks like when it's really complete where there is no, as the Bible would say, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female anymore because when you have the Spirit of God on you, it doesn't matter. God uses the most unlikely people, scared people, unqualified people. And if you 
give your life to Christ and say, I want to follow you, Jesus. He's going to give you the same spirit he gave to Deborah and very unlikely things that happen in your life will be used in God's story. And your life starts making sense because it's part of something that God is doing when you give your life to him and he pours his spirit out on you. So they have peace for about 40 years. And then the cycle begins to repeat again, unfortunately. Come to Judges chapter 6. If you turn over your Bible, Judges chapter 6. Here we go again. This time the people have gone after different gods and so forth and God turns them over in their period of sorrow this time is because the Midianites are coming in and beating up on them and it's a difficult time for the people and they are experiencing great suffering Judges chapter 6 verse 6 Midian so impoverished the Israelites that finally they cried out to God for help and that's what's going on when we come and we meet a man named Gideon everybody say Gideon Gideon. Now, he is, the Bible says, and he introduces him to us, he's threshing grain in a wine press. That is not how you normally do that. You normally thresh your grain out in the open so the wind can come and blow away the chaff. Why is he in the wine press? Because he's scared to death of the Midianites. Because the Midianites will come in and they, they'll steal and plunder and burn their houses and steal their, their stuff and, and their food. And so everyone's running scared. And so he's, he's doing his work by cover of darkness or hiding in the barn out back so that nobody can steal his stuff. He's not exactly a warrior type, Gideon. He's just a, he's a chicken farmer and I don't mean he raises chickens. So God steps into this cycle and says, okay, it's time for me to send a deliverer. And so of all people, he chooses Gilligan. I mean Gideon. <laughs> he says, I'm going to use you to bring my people back to me. And so then he says, the, the word of the Lord comes and says in verse 12 of chapter 6, the Lord is with you, Gideon, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. You, you ever have God, you, sometimes God says things are true about you that we're hesitant to believe and accept. That's what happens with Gideon. The next whole section of Scripture here is him saying, yeah, but, 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 I'll show it, prove it, I don't believe it. What about that? What about that? It seems like you've abandoned me. Verse 15, but, but how can I save Israel? My, my clan is the weakest. I don't have a good family. And I'm the weakest, in, I'm the least in my family. You don't understand who you're talking to. Pick someone else. When God speaks to you, how quickly do you obey? How quickly do you believe that it's not really about you? but his purposes that he wants to, to work through your life. God answers in verse 16, I will be with you. Five words. Remember that from last week? I will be with you and we're going to strike down the Midianites. It's a promise. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. And so Gideon still wants a sign. He passes, puts the fleece out and all that. I'm not sure that God loves it when we do that, but he, he, was, he did it for Gideon. And then God gives a test for, for Gideon. He wants to know if he's truly committed. And so God commands Gideon to go to his own father's house who worshiped the Baals and tear down those, those altars to Baal on his own dad's property. Pretty big deal. Pretty big test right off, right off the bat. And Gideon obeys. He goes to his dad's house in the middle of the night and tears it all down. And they found out who did it and they weren't too happy with Gideon. And some of you can relate to this in your story. Because you often, we all often will face tests in our family. I don't care what part of the family you're part of. If you're committed to Christ as a follower of His, um, there will be times when you will boldly have to take a stand for your faith and follow Jesus, even if it involves taking a stand with your family. 
It's not a matter of trying to ruffle feathers or upset anyone with your extended family or appear sort of spiritually like a holier than thou, you know. You don't have to make a big scene at a family reunion about this. But if you're chosen to be a Christ, if you're, if you're choosing to be a follower of Christ, there will be moments of truth where you have to declare your ultimate allegiance, whether it's the family way or God's way. So, you know, you know your own family. Some families, for example, um, have a way of keeping racism alive and well, perpetuating it. They don't think of it as a spiritual issue, but it is. I'm telling you, it is. Maybe that's an altar that needs to be torn down by you. At least for you and for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Or if there's a violent or mean streak that no one really addresses, talks, no, don't talk about that in our family. You know, following Christ is going to lead you to a different place than your family way will lead you. I don't care who you are. Or maybe it's, it's okay to have a little church or Christianity to a point, but if you get really carried away and actually really believe this stuff and want to live it to the full, and it's like that's a poo-pooed or looked bad upon, you're going to have some, some, some decisions to make. Please put Jesus over your family tradition. Like Gideon did. But don't be arrogant, don't be harsh, but be passionate and love people all the way in the way you convey it and let God take care of things. And He will. Okay? So the story moves on, and there's a battle to be fought here, and it's Gideon, and he's supposed to rally up. This, this, this farmer is going to be now a, a general. And so how's that going to work out? And especially when you consider that he's got an army of about 30,000 guys, which sounds impressive to realize that the Midianites have over 100,000. So God looks at that and he says, we've got a real problem with the armies here. And Gideon's like, you're not kidding. And God says, yeah, the problem is you've got too many men, Gideon. Too many men, and that's like saying there's too much bacon on the buffet. I mean, you can't have too many men... And but, but, so God, as a process, he whittles it all down from three, down to 300 men against over 100,000, and then they're ready to go to battle. And why does God do that? Because he always does this stuff all the way through the story to remind us who the real victor is. So we can't puff our chest out and say, I did that. He wants sometimes to stack the deck so much that he will be the deliverer. So just like an AA, you have to declare, I need a higher power. And his name is Yahweh God. And that's what God wants to say. I'm the one who delivers you. And don't you forget it. So that's why the battle plan doesn't even involve swords. Again, this week, as, as just like last week, involves a bunch of trumpets and empty jars and flashlights. And their plan is in the middle of the night to go surround the Midianite camp with the 300 guys and, and sort of on signal start tooting their horns and waving their lights and making a bunch of racket. Normally, one army would have one trumpet. So they have a whole bunch of trumpets and it brings a sense of confusion. In the middle of the night, the guys are rubbing their eyes and we think the Midianites might not have all spoken the same language so they couldn't communicate. And, they, and in the confusion and darkness, they hear, they're surrounded by all these armies. They don't know it's 300 men. They start taking their swords and then a riot breaks out and they, they, they kill each other. And they are subdued by this 300 ragtag, unsophisticated Israelite soldiers and the people had peace for another 40 years. It's a good thing for us to remember. God puts these stories in here over and over again. And Scripture often says, with God, nothing is impossible. So when you're faced with impossible odds and it feels like you've got 100,000 Midianites and all you've got is a flashlight and a horn, you can remember when, when, you, when you say, we'll never get out of this debt, we'll, I, we'll never restore or rekindle this marriage, we'll never get that kid back, We'll, we'll never, I'll never be able to stop this habit. I'll never be able to get out of my cycle. I've never, I've never, I can't quit. I can't start. I can't become the person I'm meant to be. Remember, nothing is impossible with God. Ultimately, it's not about you, but the one you cry to who sends a deliverer.
to help you out of the cycle or struggle you're in. No sooner had the people, uh, had Gideon died, than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Chapter 8, verse 33. So here we are. After all of that, right back. Deja vu all over again. They, they forgot God. The last judge in this trilogy that's talked about here is a guy named Samson. Everybody say Samson. Just touch on Samson. You can read the story. It's a fascinating story. He had, a, he was, he had taken a Nazarite vow, which meant as a way of dedicating himself to God as a baby when he was dedicated. Part of that was growing his hair. He didn't keep most of that promise, but he did keep the part about not cutting his hair, apparently. And that was also a way that it was sort of a symbolic way that God honored him with some physical power. So he's a kind of he-man, but he's got a she problem. He, uh, he's got a real weakness for the ladies. He likes to, inter he likes to intermarry with the, the foreign women that, that God didn't want him to. He's an undisciplined violent, lacking in self-control man with a weakness for the ladies. Uh, one of his road trips, he falls in love with a woman named Delilah who, like in James Bond fashion, uh, goes undercover and uh, is a spy and she's paid about equivalent of like $25,000 to try to get the secrets of his strength so the Philistines can finally get rid of this guy. And she uses that great line, if you really loved me, whenever you hear that word, just run, smack yourself, get out of the room. Okay, I don't care who you are, but that's what she uses. He's dumb enough, and so one day Samson traded God, trades God's secret for Victoria's secret, and it's not pretty, and he tells her the truth. She shaves off his head, and, and it's an ugly ending. He gouges his eyes out. He, he kind of ends his life with a suicide bombing, honestly. He comes back one last time and destroys the temple, kills himself for everybody else. These aren't, it's important that we realize these people aren't in the Bible because they're models, they're role models. It's not like children, I want you to grow up and be just like Samson. No, not really. Okay, now here, is that why we don't teach in Sunday school right now what's going on with our children's ministry? They don't have tent pegs and they're not practicing back there. Everything in here, everything in here is not a, an example of what to be like. Much of it is a tragedy, an example of what not to be like. Really. The, the, the issue is we're looking at this cycle and asking ourselves, what are we supposed to learn that these people never seem to learn? Let me give you just three words to kind of leave with you that seem prominent in my mind after listening to this text for this week. Three words. And the, first, the first word that I want to offer to you, and I, and I just hope that you will take to heart whatever I'm going to say here and apply it in whatever way God directs you to. I'm going to make you do some of the work. I'm not going to spell it out for you, but if you're hungry and you want to, you want to be faithful, you'll figure out what you need to do here. Okay? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The first word I want to give you is the word children. Because that's such a prominent part of this whole cycle. As soon as Joshua died, and they, you know, the next generation, they didn't know anything about God. They didn't pass their faith along, and that's, one of the, that's the reason that this kept happening again and again and again. There was no ownership of the next generation. And Christianity is the same way, friends. We're always one generation away from extinction. They were so busy teaching them a trade or raising them, you know, eking out an existence that they forgot the whole God piece. Jesus says one time, what good is it gain to, what, what, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And so we have to think very seriously about what we're passing on to children. If we're, if we're only just sort of making sure they do well in their SAT or learn how to play the trumpet or get in the marching band or, or know karate, but lose their soul. That's on us, and guess what? We've not done them any favors. So anything we can do to help them get spiritual footing and connection, and you don't have to be a spiritual giant to do that. 
You don't even have to be anything near perfect, but you do have to be willing to invest in the life of kids. So here's my question for you. Are you building genuine heart-level faith in a child or a young person? Are you? Are you doing everything you can? You can't force it, but are you doing what you can do? If you have children of your own, this is your kids we're talking about. If you have grandchildren, this is your grandchildren. If you have nephews or nieces, or if you, if you are inclined and God is speaking to you about interacting with the kids in your neighborhood, or at the epicenter, volunteering and tutoring, or here in our children's ministry in one of our campuses. And the key to doing this is, I was thinking about the three R's. You've got to keep it real. It's got to be real because they see through just phony, shallow stuff. No, mean, no meaningless rituals and rules. They're not going to want, they don't care about that. They keep it real and make sure they know it's about relationship where you really love God. It's not about forcing compliance on some set of rules that are satisfying to you. That all goes away. That's why half of those who are raised in the church today leave the church as soon as they can. And it's got to be regular. Keep it real, make it about a relationship, and make it regular. Their kids are watching. You know, they're not, they're not going to replicate what, they, what you say. They're going to replicate what, what they see. So do everything you can to model a real relationship with God. Deuteronomy 6 is a passage in the Old Testament that's preparing the people to go into Canaan, the passage right where they are. And it said, when you go in there, you, you follow God and you teach your children and talk about these things of God and what He's done and who He is and what He means to you when, you when you get up in the morning, when you walk along the way, when you go to bed at night. In other words, every day, make it regular and real and about a relationship. To get real practical, just for you and me, think about some strategic ways you can do this. If you have children in your life or your family, think about these four things. Morning time. Morning time. In our house, that's kind of chaotic and Half the members of our family are crabby. But is there, what could you do at morning time that would say we're God's people? Is there a scripture card that could be at the breakfast table on the mirror or a short prayer, I love you, God loves you on the way out the door? Drive time. Spend a lot of time back and forth to sports and music and school, don't we? Drive time. Capitalize on it. As you're walking along the road, the Bible says, so capitalize on it. In my, in my car, I don't like taxiing texters. So it's like, shut that phone off, we're talking. I'm a person, let's talk. Talk about life, build a relationship out of which faith conversation grows. Drive time, meal time, meal time. Can you say a prayer together? Thank God, talk about the day. Bring God into everyday living. Bedtime, snuggle, cuddle, talk, pray, love them. Help them see God in the middle of your family. Morning time, drive time, meal time, bedtime. What are you going to do with it? Children is something that's huge in this passage. Invest. Second word I'll leave with you. Conformity. Conformity. That's the issue going on with Israel. They come into Canaan. They didn't conquer Canaan. They didn't get rid of all the Canaanites or all the Canaanite stuff going on. There was lots of battles going on. But the biggest battle with Canaan was not fought on the soil. It was fought in the soul. It was... It was a battle for whose gods and whose way of life would dominate. So even though Israel came in, they struggled for a long time and they found themselves absorbed into the surrounding culture in many, many ways that they never anticipated. They, they were sort of simple, nomadic shepherds from the desert and they came into this more sophisticated way and they sort of were wowed by that and some of that became part of their way of life and some of that was their religion. 
The religion of Canaan is described in the Bible as worship of the Baals and Ashtoreths or Ashtarts. Baal is simply a word that means Lord or owner, and it was also then the name of the sun god, and his wife, sort of his consort, was Mrs. Baal or Ashtoreth or Ashtart, and they were kind of the god of that whole region in the ancient Near Eastern world, but every town and village had their own Baals as well, so lots of gods to choose from. And, they, and this is the fertile crescent, right? And so everyone's very dependent on fertility of the soil and the earth. Everybody is. And the people marvel at this mysterious rhythm of the earth and the way that the crops would come and produce life every so often and how their livelihood depended on that. And so they saw Baal as the Lord of the earth and the one who is connected deeply with its fruitfulness and this cycle of fertility. And so they believed in the spring then after a period of dormancy when the rains would come and penetrate the earth, it was somehow connected. It was an expression of Baal and his sexual relations with his partner. Ashtoreth. And this is what then brought about the earth which got the crops which meant their livelihood. So they were very interested in these relations happening between the gods. And so they believed that through a kind of magical participation they could encourage the fertility of the earth by having their own sexual relations which would release these mysterious powers of fertility and ensure prosperity. So as a huge part of their worship, as strange as it sounds to us, their temples were filled with sacred prostitution where a man would go and play the part of Baal and then the prostitute would play the part of his consort and they believed that their physical union that they'd act out would kind of in a magical way manipulate the gods to give them a bumper crop. And so you can see how the Canaanite religion was, was a highly erotic and, and these sexual ceremonies were tied into magic and fertility all in an attempt to sort of enter into the rhythms of the earth and, and coerce the gods to give them what they wanted which is completely opposite of God who says, I'm the creator of the earth. I'm not part of it. And I'm not a God to be coerced by magical incantations so, you, so you, I can work for you and give you what you want. I'm a God who created you. I love you. I've been faithful. I'll lead you. I just need you to trust me. I need you to love me. It's about faithfulness and relationship. And that was the reason for the covenant. And, and they believed it for a minute, but then they, they were swallowed up in what they saw around them. And it was you can see why now the Bible was very insistent on saying this is important that you not get swallowed up in that. Don't compromise. Don't, don't see religion as somewhere you try to control God. Surrender your control to Him and be faithful. Let me ask you a question. We live in the same kind of reality, don't we? We're trying to live as God's people, but it's a whole lot easier just to blend in and compromise. So let me ask you, does your devotion to God make you any different? It ought to in certain ways. Does your devotion make you any different? Romans 12 says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are you devoted to God? And if so, how does that make you different? It ought to. The last word I'll leave with you is the word cycle. Because it's an invitation for us to think about our own lives, your life, my life, and where we might be here. Because truth told, some of us are right here, aren't we? You know, we're, we're, we know to some degree whether, that we're living in a kind of disobedience to God, not living with Him as our highest priority. And maybe we're ready to acknowledge that there's some consequences that come with that. We feel a distance and separation from God. 
or we're struggling in relationships with others around us or physically or emotionally or other ways our life is, is difficult right now and it's part of the pain that we have is as a result of our disconnection from God. Maybe you're even honest enough to come clean and ready today to sort of say, I'm ready to call on God and to say, God, in humble repentance, I need you. I want you to lead me out of this cycle. I don't like where I am and I know I need you. What I want you to know is that God in His mercy and grace has sent the one great final judge and His name is Jesus. And He has come to rescue and deliver us from all of the insanity and the cycles that we find ourselves in, whether it's addiction or stupidity or something that someone has done to you. No more blood needs to be shed. No more battles need to be fought. Jesus has come and He's the one great judge to end all judges. And he is your rescuer and your deliverer and your savior. And what you're invited to do is call on him in faith. And the issue is not about your ability to stay faithful. It's about his faithfulness. And he is faithful. The Bible says, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And he is just. And He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Restoration comes through recognition of our sin, a realization that it's costing us something, and a repentance back to God so He can rescue us. I invite you to do that today. I hope you do. Let's pray. God, we ask for You to rescue us from our cycles of addiction and insanity and stupidity and stubbornness and sin. And we declare before you that we love you and need you and we say great is your faithfulness. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.